C.S. Lewis, the uh, English author and Christian, wrote that he or she who plans for this life but fails to plan for the next one is wise for a moment but a fool forever. And what he meant was it's the person who lives with eternity in mind who lives the most significant life of all. And I have a question for you this morning. It's a question that has every intention, if you will, of changing your life, depending on how you answer it. And the question is simply this. What are you living for? So this morning is um, it's kind of a special morning. We've got a, uh, a guest speaker, and um, no, he is not a candidate. So <laughs> just, just want to make that clear, because I got a feeling that you're all going to be clamoring after the uh, elders after I was going, we like that guy. Uh, <clears throat> Denny Valesi is a, uh, a good friend of ours. Uh, Denny and his wife, Lisa, have been in, well, they've been in Jana's life for a really, really long time. Uh, Denny was Jana's youth pastor in high school. Um, Lisa was Jana's mentor in high school, the person that she just looked up to and, and wanted to, to emulate and learned all those lessons about how to be a wife, how to be a Christian woman, and, and all those things um, Lisa imparted to her. And uh, Denny married us 30 and a half years ago. Um, and they together counseled us through those rough first couple of years of marriage when we really needed it and uh, helped, us, uh, helped us establish a foundation uh, there. Denny was a uh, pastor at, uh, associate pastor at Calvary Community Church. Um, he felt God's call to go to Orange County, and who knows why. But, uh, <laughs> but Denny and Lisa started meeting with a, a group of people in their living room in Orange County. And from there, uh, God blessed their ministry. They love people. And um, it was very obvious, and God blessed their ministry. And they, from that sprung up uh, Coast Hills Community Church, a church of thousands of, of people. And, their ministry touched thousands and thousands of people um, in the Orange County area over, over many, many years. And um, it was a, an amazing thing to watch and to see. Um, and so when Denny retired from there, he's, he's been involved in a lot of things. I'll let him you know, tell you a little bit about some of the things uh, since then. But um, we are really, really privileged to have uh, Denny and Lisa Balesi here with us this morning. And I just want to extend the warmest welcome I can to you guys and thank you. Thank you, Bill. That's more than nice. Some of it was true. <laughs> and uh, it is a pleasure to be here. My wife, Lisa, is with me. Uh, stand up, honey. There she is. This is my first wife. We got married when she was 12. and. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, and I can, I can tell you some great stories about Jana. Oh, I've got lots of stories about Jana. I'll never forget, uh, we, we, we took a group of kids to uh, the top of, uh, um, in Yosemite. We backpacked from Tuolumne Meadows up to the to, uh, main camp, which was about 30, 40 miles or something over the course of a week. And the highlight of the trip is the last day you climb up the top of Half Dome, which is this long, this long hike up to the base of the back of this, this cliff, and then you go up this, you keep going, and then you hit this place where you hit this, uh, with this ladder, and it's like about a 60 degree climb. You climb up this rope ladder, and you get up on top of uh, the, the, uh, the peak there, and it's just completely bald. It's just magnificent view. You see the whole valley from there, and there is this platform, essentially like this, like the, the stage here. And it's not a whole lot bigger than this. And literally, if you stand on the edge, if you were to step off this edge, you would fall 
5,000 feet before you hit anything, and the first thing that you would hit would be the valley floor. And so we get up on top of uh, Half Dome there, and I'm, you know, I'm exhausted. It's a long hike up deal. You climb up top. You get it. You're exhilarated, and you've got all these high school people. And Jana, I think, was 10th grade at the time. And they're all standing or kneeling on the edge of this deal, looking, I've got their feet hanging over the edge, and they're going, whoa, whoa. <laughs> My heart is going, whoa, And I'm like 30 feet away from this deal, and they're all just hanging out, doing this, and I'm thinking, oh, I don't know if Gene and Nancy ever heard that story. Did you? They're dear friends as well. They kind of watched over all of us, and... Uh, we appreciate their prayers. It's good to see Gene here this morning, too, after what he's been in. Let's welcome him, okay? So anyway, it is a pleasure to be here. I uh, went out and met your neighbors. Uh, invited, I got invited to uh, milk goats this morning. <laughs> Never had that happen before in a, when I speak at a church. But uh, it's uh, great to be here, and it's a real privilege. And let me pray for us as we begin. Our Father... Thank you for the privilege of gathering together as your people. I recognize that uh, you've called us together. You've called this church together. And um, from all the corners of this community. And they've gathered together to give praise to you. And in doing so, to tell you that we love you, we do. Though often times feebly, but we do. We love you. And we also come to remember to remember whose we are, yours, and how much you love us, and of your great patience, and of uh, your place in our hearts, and the ways in which you have protected us, and provided for us, and disciplined us, and led us through different courses of each and every week. And Lord, for those things, we give you thanks and praise. And uh, we remember because, and are called to remember, because... The surest thing about us as human beings is our tendency oftentimes to forget. And so, Lord, as we turn our attention to your word now, I pray that uh, you not only um, open our eyes, but I also pray that you open our ears to what the Holy Spirit wants to say to us individually. And that you, in a great way, open our hearts to hear it all. And we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. One of the reasons that I like the epistle of the Philippians is because it's only four chapters. Uh, and I'm a simple man in a lot of ways. But I also love it because of the context. It's kind of like what Paul wanted to get said almost on his deathbed. I sense that these are the things that he really wanted people to know and carry out where he was at this particular time. Because Paul was in prison when he wrote the epistle to the Philippians. And he was chained each and every day to a guard, a Roman guard, who uh, essentially uh, kept him in line or tried to keep him. I, I can't even imagine trying to keep the Apostle Paul in line in some ways. But... Uh, but that was, that was the, the circumstance, and that was the context of his writing this letter. And in it, he has some things to say that I think we need to hear. In fact, lots of different things. Probably one of the reasons why they're considered scripture. But I want to read to you this, uh, this, this, uh, this passage that we're going to look at this morning, and then we're going to unpack it a little bit. Beginning in verse 3, it says, I thank my God. Every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. From the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. Let me stop there for just a moment to say I love verse 6. I don't know, it's one of my life verses. And the reason I love it is because it it. It talks about not only what's to come, but what has been and the process in, involved. And it reminds us that what God has begun, he continues to be involved with until a point in time when he is complete. And he's talking about essentially your and my salvation if we know Christ. 
He's talking about the fact that one day in time, at a moment in time, God began something in you in salvation. You were saved. At the same time, he says, and God continues to be saving you. And one day you're going to stand before him, and on that day you're going to be completely saved. In essence, one of the things he's saying is that you weren't saved just to go to heaven. If that was the case, you'd have been saved in the moment that you were, you'd be zipped off to the heavenly places. For some reason, God wants us here. And he still works in us. And that process to some degree and the life that he's asking us to live is kind of what we want to talk about this morning. Let me read on. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. For whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It's true that some preach Christ out of envy or rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. And yes, I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that God will in no way be ashamed, that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. It's been said that if you aim at nothing, you will no doubt hit it every time. Life coaches and consultants often use that phrase. I remember one using it to me when they are trying to help businesses or organizations and individuals sharpen their focus on some particular and personal goals or objectives in order to be successful whether it's an organization, whether it's an individual. In fact, that's how a friend of mine, uh, Bob Beal, was one of our early elders at Coast Hills and, uh, and a consultant for lots and lots of Christian organizations across the country and around the world. That's how he helped me to define success. He said, Denny, success is really as easily understood and defined as accomplishing your goals. Now, I grew up in a house where I never knew how to set a goal. Uh, this may come as a surprise to some of you, but, and, and some of you can really understand that. How many of you had parents who never did your homework for you? <laughs> if you're over 45, all of you has had that. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's fascinating to me. I didn't really know how to set goals. I never understood what a good goal was. And, and I had to be taught as an adult, begin to think about the value of, of setting some particular targets and help it be helpful both in my personal life as well as my ministry when it came to this idea of being or at least accomplishing something to say, I did it, it's successful. But last June I turned 60. I know I don't look it. 
I am. I turned 60, and you know one of the things, and I've probably achieved some measure of success, certainly more than I thought it would, would uh, it's at other points in time in my life. But you know, I've discovered when you get into your 50s and, and 60s that success isn't as important as it once was, or at least the defining of accomplishing this goal. And I've switched that to begin to think about another word that's become much more important to me than success. And that's the word significance. Strange things happen, especially to men. But when you make this shift from success to significance, all of a sudden it's like somebody has opened the curtains on a whole new season of living. When I think about significance, I began to think about what will last from my life or from my ministry. And what, will, what really matters? You know, when you get to be 60, there's a lot of things that you thought were so important that aren't important at all anymore. Or what will be left behind or be valued and remembered as important or having made a difference for not only years, but maybe even generations to come, what difference will it make that I've been here? Having grandchildren really, first of all, being a grandparent is the best gig in the world. Yeah. Isn't it? And you know, if I knew how great it was to be a grandfather, I would have had my grandchildren first. <laughs> And I've got four of the greatest grandkids in the whole world. And I also have two of the greatest daughters in the whole world. But, uh, but there's a difference. There's a difference between success and significance. My friend Bob also helped me to understand what's, what, what that difference was. And he defines significance as, as taking aim and taking hold of the right goals the right objectives that make a difference both for today and tomorrow and for all eternity. C.S. Lewis said, he or she who plans for this life but fails to plan for the next one is wise for a moment but a fool forever. And what he meant was it's the person who lives today with eternity in mind who lives the most significant life of all. And I think that that's what Paul is really talking about here. I have a question for you this morning. It's a question that could possibly change your life. And the question is simply this, what are you living for? What are you living for? What are you aiming your life at? Because to aim at nothing is to hit nothing every time. And to aim at nothing and to be aimless in that sense is to be neither successful nor significant. Now most of us, I suspect, would say, well, I know I'm living for something, and, but I haven't really thought about it so much. Well, well, what if you were to think about it? What am I living for? Some of us, if we were honest, would say, you know what, I'm living for an ideal. I'm living for a dream. I'm living for this set of values. Others would say, you know what, I'm, I'm living for what's next. Maybe a, a new car, another house, another business, another this, that, or the other. If we were honest, we might say, I'm really living for stuff. Others will say, well, I'm living, if you run a job, I'm living to prove something. Some of us may be living to prove something to ourselves. Some of us may be living to prove something to our dad. You know, how many men grown up want nothing more than the good housekeeping seal of approval of their dad and when they get it, it would almost be like, ah. Someone asked Burt Reynolds one time, um, what was that? Oh, how do you know you're a man? 
This is when your daddy tells you you are. And I think there's a lot of guys, a lot of businessmen, a lot of people who go through life trying to prove to their dad that they're really, really are worthy of being their son. And they don't even know it. Some of us are living our lives to prove something. Some of us are living our lives for a career, for a job, for security. Someone said the list of things for which men and women are willing to spend their life for is almost endless. But whatever it is that you're living for, here's the follow-up question. And one that is potentially life-changing. The question is, what is going to be left of that? Or what do you hope to gain from what you're living for when you die? Ooh. Now, wait a minute. I'm not trying to be Denny Downer here, okay? <laughs> but the truth of the matter is that short of the Lord's return, all of us are going to die someday. Someday. Whether we like it or not. And for some of us, that day is going to come way down the line at the end of 70, 80, 90, 100 plus years. I mean, what was it 30, 40 years ago, the average age of a man was something in his late 50s, early 60s, and now it's in the 70s and 80s. I've got a, two 89-year-old in-laws, and a, my dad and mom are 82, three out of the four in assisted living going through that was still hanging on. I mean, it's remarkable. Some of us may live long, long, long time. For others of us, that day may come much sooner and maybe much more suddenly than we ever expected. I have a friend at, uh, in ministry who lost his 12-year-old daughter about two months ago. He was walking at Disneyland one day and his daughter was having difficulty. She looked like she was kind of wobbling back and forth and she started seeing double and took her to the doctor and the doctor looked at her and diagnosed that she had a brain tumor that was inoperable and couldn't nothing could be done and he said well what what do you suggest we do and he said I suggest you go home and, and put things in order because she'll probably live for another two weeks she lived a year and three months. Started an amazing, amazing ministry to kids who uh, were in cancer wards and hospitals and uh, putting jars together because she would, she would go to children's hospital and, and uh, her mom would take her there every morning for her cancer treatments and then she'd leave and she noticed that other kids um, couldn't leave and so she just said mom what can we do to help people so they came up with this idea of called joy jars and she would stuff them with candy or crayons and different things and she'd give them out to people started a non-profit organization called NEGU N-E-G-U never ever give up their goal was 100,000 people, that was what she was living for. 100,000 people that would sign up to become, to give jars, joy jars out. 4,000 people attended her funeral. About 150 kids in her swimming team gave their life to Christ at that, at that funeral. It, why, you know, I don't know why. Some of us, it may be much sooner, more suddenly than we ever expected. I want you to know something. We don't get to choose how long we live. 
But we do get to choose what we live for. What we live for. And on the day you die, the day that I die, one thing is going to become very, very certain. And that is that what we live for is either going to be determined as our greatest loss or our greatest gain. Which makes those questions all the more important. You see, I would suggest to you that this morning that most people have a view of life that causes them to see their death as a great and immeasurable loss. For instance, there are those whose whole focus and purpose in life is to amass a great fortune for themselves. And all their hopes and dreams are bound up in holdings and assets and acquisitions. And death for them would seem to be, in their own mind, a tragic loss of all that they've spent and given their life securing. The Great Depression in the 1930s, we saw the collapse of the stock market. People who suddenly lost their wealth that they'd accumulated jumped out of windows and committed suicide because they thought if they can't have their fortunes, life wasn't worth living. We've seen almost a repeat of some of that on a different level in the last three or four years. A lot of people lost companies. My wife went to a shower here a couple of weeks, months, or about a month or so ago, and a woman sat next to her and said, I lost my husband. He committed suicide. We lost our, his company. He lost this, that, and the other. I thought, oh, my gosh. Life wasn't worth living for him. Others give their lives to pursuing a, an image or some measure of fame or some level of power and prestige or some ever-increasing number of possessions and attempt to satisfy themselves and somehow capture the attention to think that this is what life is really all about. And please understand, I'm not saying that it's wrong to want and have nice things. I'm not saying it's wrong to operate and own successful businesses. I'm not saying it's wrong to have or maintain a great reputation or to be wealthy and influential. I am not saying that. Please don't hear me say so. What I'm saying is that when these things become our highest pursuit, our greatest goal, when these are the things that we are ultimately living for, then death can only and sadly be viewed as a great loss. Because to die is to leave it all behind and depart with nothing. Nothing. And I would suggest to you that even, in fact, that if, if you were to live even in this life, that ultimately living like that isn't worth a whole lot. Charles Swindoll wrote that when money is our ultimate objective, we live all the time in fear of losing it, which makes us paranoid and suspicious. When fame is our ultimate aim, we become competitive, lest others upstage us, which makes us envious and jealous. When ultimately power and influence drive us, we become self-serving and self-absorbed, which makes us arrogant and obnoxious. When possessions become our God, we become materialistic, thinking enough is never enough, which makes us greedy. And all these pursuits, he says, fly in the face of contentment and joy. He concludes that that's no way to really live at all. And yet, many of us, even as Christians, live just this way. And so what's the alternative? Well, I think that what Paul was talking about here in prison has an op is, a, is really one of those things that is to provide an alternative. See, Paul had a view of life which enabled him to see the result of his ultimate death whenever it came, and he knew it was coming as his greatest asset. He said, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. The Living Bible says, for me to live, for me, living means opportunities for Christ, and dying, well, that's better yet. The message says, 
Alive, I'm Christ's ambassador. Dead, I'm his bounty. Life versus even more life. I can't lose. You know what he's saying? He's saying that the most significant way to live your life is to make your priority to know and serve Christ above all the other priorities in your life. It's about making him the hub, the centerpiece of this wheel that has all these spokes that were never intended to be whatever they are, never intended to be the hub of your life, never intended to be the centerpiece of your life because they can't sustain your life. Christ, he said, is the centerpiece around which all the other areas of life find their greatest meaning, their greatest purpose, and their greatest significance. And he says it is worth it to live this way both in this life and the next life. Chapter 3 in Philippians, verse 7, he says, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to... It's not saying that any, everything is, is horrible, bad, you know, da, 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 yeah, that house that you have there, that's not an evil thing. It's... Brick and mortar, it's plastic, it's this, that, that, it's not evil. He said, but in comparison, he said, to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ, it doesn't compare. I consider them rubbish, and that's a nice translation. <laughs> I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which is through faith in Christ for the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. I want to become like him in his death so that somehow I can attain the resurrection from the dead. That's how I want to live. And that's the way I want, that I will. I've got an assignment for you. I want you to finish this sentence. For me to live is what? Think about that. You may not have time to do it right now, but think about that. But think about the rest of what I want to say. Because for me to live is what? Whatever it is that you put in that blank, you need to know that if it's something that doesn't last forever, then the rest of the phrase more likely is going to read... To die is loss. Jesus said it this way. What does it profit a man or a woman to gain the whole world and forfeit their own soul? And Paul would say, not enough. Not enough. So what does it mean to make Christ one's highest priority what does it mean to live significantly as a follower of Jesus every day well I would suggest to you that Paul would say it means to live courageously and purposefully or fearlessly with eternity in mind with eternity in mind and he mentions three things in this passage that are related to that he kind of defines this idea of what it means to live significantly for Christ. The first one is found in verse 12. It's to live your life in a way that serves to advance the gospel. Listen to what Paul says, verse 12. He says, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Here's Paul tied up in, in jail. And he's saying, this is... This is a hard thing, but this, there's something that's been good about that. You know what's been good about this? Is that I've been tied to some people, and, and in the midst of all that's going on around me, the gospel is being advanced. In some cases, in places that it would never have gone before. How many of you have ever heard the name Yosef Narcardian? He's a pastor in Iran. Two and a half years ago, he was put in jail because someone said he converted 
to Christianity from a Muslim background. And the hardliners in Iran said that that's against the law and we're going to try you. And they found him guilty of that and he was to be executed. That got out. He's been in jail for two and a half years. That was sent back to the Supreme Court and they thought they'd be able to get him out because everybody had kind of come to know this and they even said, well, now it isn't this that he did this, but he raped somebody and he did this, that, and the other. Well, the reality is that those were all just trumped up things and they know that that was the case and they were found to be the case in jail, but they decided that because he did, you know, and he wouldn't recant his profession of faith, that he is to be executed. And so now he's on death row in Iran and all over the world now, Christians have come to this, and this is kind of going out everywhere. He doesn't even know it, I'm sure. But the remarkable thing is how many people are now coming known of, are, are, being, are coming to the understanding of the advance of the gospel. Why would people do that just because of something they believe? What is it about Christian beliefs that, that, would, that, that are so frightening to the Iranian government? I need to investigate this. In spite of all the things that are going on, the gospel is being advanced. Millions and hundreds of millions of people are hearing this story and wondering how this is going to find itself out. And yet in spite of it all, some horrible things that God has, for whatever reason, allowed Yosef is living his life in a way that is advancing the gospel to the glory of God, to the blessing of others. And my prayer is to his own joy. If he would recant, he could be free. He won't do it. Because for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. You don't have to be a pastor to advance the gospel. Let me say that again. You don't have to be a pastor to advance the gospel. In fact, you can go so many more places where pastors can't. And being a pastor, you don't even want us there. <laughs> okay? Pastors can be some of the most insecure people on the planet. <laughs> God's not calling everybody to be a pastor. He is calling us all to be ambassadors. And God needs people in every corner of the world, of the marketplace, of the community, to be simply that, his ambassadors. And you know, God has called you to some places where you work, where you play, where you do your shopping, where you do your business. And God can do remarkable things if we simply say, you know, this is the way I want to live. My wife was uh, on the couch in doubled up in pain for months from an accident. And in the midst of that really, really dark time for her, she said, I kind of came to the conclusion that I needed to just say, God, here I am again, just that teenage girl that loved you, wanted to be nothing more than a Jesus freak. And... Uh, Wherever you want me to go, I'm open, I'm ready. Here I am, send me. Had no idea what God had in mind for her in the next seven years. Two weeks later, uh, I was preaching at a uh, big church in Pasadena, Lake Avenue Church, where I served as a teaching pastor, interim teaching pastor for two years while they looked for a new pastor. And, and a guy walked up and tapped my wife on the, on the shoulder and said uh, uh, my name is told us his name and um, he said would you mind praying for my girlfriend and my wife said sure I'd love to pray for your girlfriend and uh, she, he said she's not a Christian he said but uh, do you watch American Idol and my wife took you know kind of looked around she says this is back in the days when nobody watched American Idol or <laughs> And uh, she, she was kind of embarrassed. She said, well, yes, I do. Uh, and uh, he said, well, 
my girlfriend's going to be on that show, and tomorrow she goes into Hollywood, into seclusion. And I was just wondering if we might be able to get together for you a cup of coffee, and you could just pray for her and share the gospel with her. So we had coffee the next day and uh, got a chance to share the Lord with her. And she kind of hit it off with my wife. And over the phone, over the next three months, she just kind of encouraged her and loved on her and mentored her. Her her roommate was Kelly Pickler. I don't know if you remember her. She was a country gal that did this, that. She did everything but spit, I think, uh, this girl. And uh, she went into the room, and there was Catherine with her, and, and uh, she said, uh, uh, are you a Christian? And she said, well, I, I've been going to church. She said, well, you know, I'm a Christian, and we're going to read the Bible every day and have devotions. And, <laughs> and uh, at the end of that week, Catherine made a commitment to Christ in a hotel room that, um, that began a, a whole completely new journey in her life. And... Um, and she's walking that journey. The result of that, uh, Lisa got to spend time with her, got to meet her family. Mom and dad were going through a divorce at the time. So we began this, this ministry opportunities that were just remarkable. The following year, my wife was in the uh, Beverly Hills Hotel where she had her nephew has a company that does all the goodie bags for those award shows, and she hired Christian college kids to host these celebrities as they went around and got all their goodie stuff. And one of the people who came in was Paula Abdul. And Lisa was her escort, and she was talking to her about uh, this gal that she had prayed for. And the phone rang. And she took the phone call, and at the end of that phone call, she had tears come down her face, and she said, would you pray for me? In the lobby of uh, Beverly Hills Hotel, Lisa put her hand on her head, prayed for her with a couple of her friends for about 15 <laughs> minutes, and they got to the end of that and said, I want you backstage at the American Idol studios every week praying for me for the next, throughout this season. So every week she'd go up to Hollywood, she'd just hang around. She didn't know what else to do. She prayed, started meeting some of the contestants, hearing their stories. She told them their, her story. Started meeting their parents, found out that the needs that they have were enormous. I mean, these, and she said, you know what? I'm just going to be a broker to help people in those needs. And over the last seven years, God's just brought her family after family after family, and she's just doing it. She's an ambassador. And over a hundred different individuals that she has reached out to and had opportunities like crazy to be able to advance the gospel behind the scenes in and through that television show. Who would have thunk? Who would have thought? Paul says in, to the Corinthians, chapter 5, 2 Corinthians. I'll find it here. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. How do you live significantly for Christ? By living your life in a way that serves to advance the gospel. By being a grateful and faithful and fruitful 
ambassador wherever he sends you. Wherever he sends you. Jesus told his disciples of the Sermon on the Mount, you are the salt of the earth. That doesn't mean a lot to us. But it had a picture in mind he was talking about. Salt was a, not only a seasoning in the ancient world, it was also a preservative. It was also a purifying agent. In fact, a purifying and preserving agent was a much more important ingredient and reason and purpose for salt than seasoning. They had spices all up. You go to the Middle East, salt's the last thing they put on. But preservative and purifying was huge. They didn't have refrigerators back in those days. They didn't have penicillin. They didn't have the, they would pour the salt on stuff. She said, that's who you are. You're the salt of the earth. He says, but if salt loses its saltiness, I love that. If salt loses its character, He said, it's good for nothing. Now here's the takeaway from that. You and I, as followers of Jesus, were never intended to be good for nothing in this world. We were meant to be agents of his, ambassadors of his. Salt. He goes on to say, you're the light of the world. A city on a hill shouldn't be hidden. And not only are individuals part of this light, but this church is part of that light. Purpose isn't just to gather together and sing Kumbaya. But to be light. As far as the radius and the radiance of that light will carry. To live your life in a way that serves to advance the gospel. Here's the second one. To live your life in a way that serves to defend the gospel. To defend the gospel. Paul says in uh, verse 15 and 16, he says, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Now, Paul, when I say to live your life in a way that serves to defend the gospel, I don't, talk, I don't mean to be defensive about the gospel. Okay? That's a sign of insecurity. But to recognize, Paul's not talking about being insecure. He's not talking about being defensive in that sense. He's talking about seeing and taking advantage of opportunities to tell your story, to speak the truth, to speak the truth. First Peter chapter three, verse 15 says, but in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the hope that you have, for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. You know what he's talking about? Always see the opportunity. Be ready to give a defense or a reason for the hope that you have in Christ. And to do so, it doesn't mean that you have to memorize the New Testament to do it. It doesn't mean you have to go to seminary to do it. It doesn't mean that you have to know the Greek and the Hebrew. He says, what you simply need to be ready to do is to tell your story. And you know why? Because that's the only one that you can tell with a sense of authenticity. Because it's yours. And get this. God can use somebody just like you to make a difference in somebody else's life. It's not up to you to make up a story, to puff up a story. You know what? I have the most boring story in the world. I was raised in the church, went to Sunday school, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. I used to be ashamed of that. My uncle cautioned me one day. He said, you know, you ought to be grateful. You didn't have to go through some of the things that people do in order to come to Christ. But I was that kid that was 
you know, my grandfather was a pastor, and, uh, but I, I was embarrassed about Christians and the church and everything growing up. I wanted to be out in the street with my friends who didn't go to church who were playing baseball on Sunday morning. And I was driving off to church, slinking in the back seat. When I got to church, I was the kid who went next door to the, he took my quarter that my parents gave me for the missionary offering, and I went to the liquor store next door and bought sunflower seeds and candy and see how big of a pile of used seeds I could build every Sunday morning under my chair at Sunday school. I wanted nothing to do with church because my understanding of Christians was that they were weird, they had red socks, they carried big Bibles, they had zits on their face, and they wore a hat that could have just as well had a big L for loser on it, you know? And I wanted nothing to do with that. I was afraid that God, if I gave my life to God, he'd make me a pastor or something. <laughs> and then my parents switched churches. Oh, I had just gotten the other one down. I knew all the words. I knew the songs. I knew when to run. I knew when to hide. And I walked into a Sunday school class. And there was a guy sitting in that Sunday school class that I played basketball and football with in the YMCA. And I thought to myself, what in the world are you doing here? You know how I became a Christian? By positive peer pressure. I met over the course of that year watching these people who were not ashamed to identify with Christ and turned out to be some of the sharpest people I know change all my misconceptions about the claims of Christ. And one Sunday night, sitting in a service, after hearing 20 verses, or 20 verses of just as I am, it was a Baptist church. I went forward and prayed a prayer. Went home and told my mom and dad that I had asked Jesus into my life. And I was going to be baptized next week. Changed the course of my life. That story has, for whatever reasons, impacted hundreds and thousands of people over the last 40 years. 45 years. God says, you don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to have some rags to riches you just need to be able to know when I'm giving you an opportunity to tell your story and do it gently and with respect of the other person. I was reading an article yesterday. Someone asked Rick Warren a question. He said, what are your greatest frustrations about Christians and evangelism? He said that my greatest frustration is that Christians would rather argue than evangelize. That people are more interested in winning arguments than in winning people. That people are more interested in making a point than making a difference. That people put politics above the souls of people. That people are more afraid of guilt by association with unbelievers than allowing others to go to hell. Boy, that puts some things in perspective, doesn't it? How do you live significantly for Christ? Ah, live your life in a way that serves to defend the gospel. That way. That way. Here's the last one. How do you live significantly in Christ? It means to learn. It means to live your life in a way that serves to display the gospel. Or as Paul says in verse 7, to confirm the gospel. I love that. I love that. You see, we don't, we don't earn our salvation. We're good evangelicals. We know our Bible. We know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. But we do prove it. We do prove it. We love verses 8 and 9. We forget verse 10 all the time. Ephesians 2 verse 8, we know that. 
For it's by grace that you've been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, so that none of us should boast. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, his piece of art, the one he's working on all the time. And you know why? Because you and I are a piece of work. <laughs> we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do what? To do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Why? Because God foresaw that there were going to be a time in a place like America where our words weren't enough. In fact, when our words would be scoffed at because we don't live it. And people need to see it. And therefore, it might be more important for us to display the gospel and thus confirm the gospel before we start preaching the gospel. So well, how do you do that? You feed the hungry. You clothe the naked. You love your neighbor. You visit the sick. You forgive your enemies. You take part in things that have to do with justice and righteousness. And you do it for that sake alone and because it pleases the heart of God for us to be like him toward other people. In short, it's to live courageously and fearlessly with eternity in mind. Gently and respectfully, eagerly and readily, advancing the gospel, defending the gospel, displaying and confirming the gospel to the glory of God, to the benefit of others. And here's the kicker to your own joy. To your own joy. Now sometimes we think, we, we love to talk about joy, but we don't experience it very much. And that's because I think we think that joy is this painting. If I could just grab this, I would have it. Joy isn't like that. Joy is a result of something else. It's a byproduct. It's a surprise. It's the fruit of that tree. It's the thing that shows up when we obey what God wants us to do and he gives us his spirit and he fills us with his spirit and in the process of that the surprise is fruit it's love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self control the things that we really desire are the fruit of what God says he wants to do in us when we give ourselves significantly to him. Let me pray for you. Father, you are a good God. And your word is true and our hearts know it. And Lord, I pray for the individuals here this morning, but also for the church together, that you would burn in our hearts a desire to live significantly for you. As grateful and faithful and fruitful ambassadors, as gentle and respected defenders of the gospel, who know and are ready to tell their own story when given the opportunity. And Lord, who desire to be people who confirm 
your work in us with our actions and our displays of the very love and truth that you say is ours to give and to live. Lord, um, take us from here to live just like that. There's probably one thing we heard today, could be several different things, but there's at least one thing that I believe your Holy Spirit wants to speak to each and every one of us. When we go from this place this morning, help us to hang on to that, burn it in our hearts. And Lord, uh, give us the grace and the courage to take action on that this week. And Lord, may it bring a smile to your face. And may it bring blessing to others. And may it surprise us. May it surprise us to see and experience uh, what we long for, joy. In your name we pray. Amen. Zesher's come to receive our offerings this morning. Thank you for letting me be with you. Thank mm-hmm. you.